I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Oh, I thought you weren't doing a squeak. Is it okay for your voice? It didn't hurt. Okay, good. (laughs) Did it sound okay? Yes. Sounded like somebody stepped on a rat. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Season four. Wow. Season four. That's big. Has it been that long? It has been that long, JJ. Oi. (laughs) Okay, today we have a case for you. So those of you who have listened to our season four podcast update or who have been on social media know that JJ has been struggling with chronic laryngitis, but her voice is much better. We're going to give it a whirl. JJ's going to attempt to read the case for us today, and then we're going to see how her voice goes. And if it starts to fail, I might have to take over towards the end of the episode. And if it hangs in tough, we're just going to see how how it happens and, and rock and roll. <laughs> it might look a little different than normal, but woohoo, woohoo. As always, when we review cases on the podcast, they are presented anonymously. That means that the names and identifying information of the patients and clients, and in some cases, the veterinarians, have been changed. We do this to protect, you know, everyone involved in the case. JJ? Yep. Take it away. I. So, we have a four-year-old female spade standard poodle named Bunny. Um, she went to the uh, emergency clinic over the weekend and presented for ADR, which is ain't doing right. Um, lethargy, mostly they worried that there's a fever. Um, when questions about GI signs, the owner mentioned one or two episodes of vomiting that they do not necessarily connect to the current episode of feeling bad. Um, no diarrhea. The patient is eating, but less than normal. Will eat treats and highly delicious foods, but not the regular foods. The ADR symptoms have been going on for about five days when the owner thinks about it. They were worried about the dogs. They went to the regular vet on Friday, and bilateral otitis externa was noted and treated. The pet was treated with a long-acting ear pack containing a fluorinated quinolone antibiotic. And the pet also received an injection of steroid to help with inflammation. So did treating the ear infection help the patient, or did the symptoms persist after that? Uh, the symptoms persisted. They didn't seem to resolve. So something other than the ears then was going on. Yeah. Okay. Overall, the pet maybe feels a little better today, but not well enough to make the client comfortable. So we know that the ears were a problem on Friday, and I could see like an ear infection causing some of the symptoms, the not doing right, maybe laying around. But I don't really think of an ear infection as causing a dog to not eat well, you know, or anything like that. Yeah, their biggest concern is a GI foreign body, given the history of eating items. Mm, So the patient has a history of eating Mm -hmm. items. Okay. Well, I think it's a good thing for us to check out, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Anything else about the history? They mentioned during the visit um, on Friday, the pet was noted to have lost six pounds since about six months prior. Wow. That's a big weight loss. Yeah. So... The patient, when it was seen on Friday for these sort of nonspecific symptoms and diagnosed with the ear infection, they just kind of offhand were like, oh, wow, the weight is six pounds different. Yeah. Okay. Six pounds is a lot. Uh, That makes me feel worried. 
Yeah, they think this is from the decreased appetite over the past five days, but it doesn't really make sense. Um, maybe with massive dehydration, but that doesn't fit. I agree. I mean, <laughs> power lifters, like, so people weighing like 200 pounds sometimes have trouble purposefully dehydrating themselves down mm-hmm. five pounds in that amount of time. So, like, it seems weird that the dog just yeah. I, I don't think that that's um i don't think that that fits i think some, something more is going on with this dog and it's been going on longer than the owners suspect mm-hmm. and the clients um, want abdominal radiographs because they're most worried about the obstruction or a gi foreign body so okay we at least know that's approved what are we seeing on physical examination the patient is quiet alert and responsive she prefers to lay quietly on the floor. Will tail wag, but it's a half wag. Mm. Mucous membranes are pink but tacky. Oral exam is normal. Okay. No evidence of pain in neck or spine on palpation. Okay. Abdomen is soft and non-painful. No fever. All vitals are within normal limits. No enlarged lip nodes. Well, it looks like our differential list is going to be wide open because yeah. nothing on physical exam was like... Super jumping out at us. Nothing glaring. Nothing glaring. Okay. Differential diagnoses. Um, I'm thinking, obviously, GI foreign body, some sort of obstruction going on. We know that the patient is one who sometimes eats objects. It's the owner's top concern, so we definitely need to put that on our list. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, a GI foreign body doesn't necessarily fit with the chronic weight loss. But maybe a chronic GI foreign body. Like I've seen dogs eat towels or string or, you know, even hard objects that get kind of trapped in the stomach and kind of bounce around in there and chronically irritate them. Um, I've seen those sorts of things cause weight loss. It's not out of the realm of possibility. And then I'm going to say any other type of GI illness that's not related to a foreign <laughs> object. So. I usually associate not eating well with GI signs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a primarily GI presentation. People always say like, oh, maybe their teeth hurt. Meh. Hurting teeth doesn't really cause appetite changes, oh, as no. evidenced by people with hurting teeth who still eat. That and the tiny chihuahuas who, if you blew on some of those incisors, they would fall out and yet right. they'll still tear up a bowl. Right. So I think of it as like a GI issue. Mm-hmm. So inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, pancreatic insufficiency, mm-hmm. uh, PLE, a protein-losing enteropathy, maybe intestinal parasites, um, some sort of oddly presenting chronic pancreatitis. Other things definitely would be on the list, but those for me are the main ones. And, you know, maybe the clients just have not recognized chronic vomiting and or diarrhea for various reasons. Maybe the dog goes outside to potty and isn't really monitored in that way and that sort of thing. Other things that cause weird chronic GI signs, Addison's disease. Yep. This is a young standard poodle with weird symptoms. I mean, we always have to have that on the list. Yep. Um, working ER now, I am much more in the habit of looking for this on every single case because we see it all the time. I mean, it's really way more common. I mean, and you know, not to say that I never saw it in general practice. I did. Maybe once a year, you know, nothing like working ER, but I think it's that concentration of complicated cases that you tend to see 
working at a specialty practice that kind of brings yeah, it in there. I can imagine if they're, you know, having a crisis and if it's not during business hours, guess where they're going? To the ER. Yep. Absolutely. Food that tastes bad. If there's been any major formula changes, if maybe the food is contaminated somehow, um, there are storage issues with the food. Maybe we've got something like a mycotoxin going on. Mm-hmm. I've seen that cause sort of weird, non-specific symptoms, and the patient is like, "Oh, this tastes weird." So yeah. I'm gonna just like not eat it and eat the other things they're giving me. Um, and then we're gonna say just other random <laughs> bullshit. Uh, these symptoms are quite non-specific, and sometimes you really have to cast a wide net to get an answer. So what's on your testing wish list? Some of the things that we have on our differential diagnosis list are very easily ruled out pretty quickly with in-house tests. And some of them require a lot deeper investigation. We do want to be comprehensive. uh, But there are some cost and time concerns with this particular patient. If we're looking at the full list of differentials, bradygraphs of the abdomen, owner wants them. I think going with that first, ideal. Then obviously a minimum database. So a complete blood count, chemistry profile with electrolytes, and a urinalysis. Because although it might not be fully diagnostic, like boom, here's the straight up answer, that gives us so much information, little red flags that we can use to point us in other directions. Mm -hmm. And some of the things on our list of differentials require major specialized tests out, uh, sent out to the reference lab and things like that. So if we're seeing those red flags on lab work, then it will help us know which of those to consider in like our second wave of testing. Abdominal ultrasound, I think in the ER setting, this is like so helpful. (laughs) Um, On a weekend, we're probably going to be talking about a fast scan, a focused abdominal assessment if we're in the ER. Uh, But if you're seeing this case in general practice, we're in a specialty clinic where your radiologist is there that day. Definitely, probably, no offense, wouldn't be there on the weekend. Um, (laughs) But but if it's a weekday or something, maybe we could get some sort of same-day full ultrasound, you know, in a Mm -hmm. perfect world. And those are the things I would probably start with. So yeah, radiographs, Full lab work, minimum database, urinalysis, abdominal ultrasound to help us understand what needs to be on our second tier of tests. So the clients want to start with radiographs of the abdomen. They show no obvious sign of obstruction or GI foreign body. There is a mildly decreased serosal detail. Okay. So decreased serosal detail, that means essentially that when we're looking at the x-ray of the belly, the outlines of the organs are less distinct than they should be. So reasons that that can happen, if there is a mass in the abdomen, if there is an abdominal effusion, so fluid in the belly between the organs and the body wall, or in emaciated or underweight patients. Uh, So to help us figure out which of these things is happening, my go-to thing again would be to look at an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd really like to do that. It makes me even more interested in checking with ultrasound, like it bumps it up maybe to the next highest thing for me, at least the fast scan, just to see, is there a fusion? Because Mm -hmm. if there's a fusion, 
then we're going to have a whole different direction than if there's not a fusion. And this is just related to the pet's thin body condition. So um, mm-hmm. I also still want lab work on the patient. Yeah. So what what <laughs> what can we negotiate in this case, JJ? Well, I got good news and bad news. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, good news is they approved the lab work. Okay. Bad news is they declined the ultrasound and the urinalysis for now. Okay. Well, we we got to do what we can. So we're gonna start somewhere. Yeah. Anytime you're going over estimates, you got to make sure that you're leaving some room, uh, money-wise, for some type of treatment. You never want to spend all the client's money doing tests. So when clients come in and they have a very specific budget in mind, you know, we just have to be mindful of it. Give them all the information. And then have them, you know, let you know what they're most comfortable with. So let, let's see what the lab work shows. The BUN is moderately elevated at 75, but the creatinine is normal at 1.2. Okay. Hyponatremia or low sodium, 128 millimoles per liter. Anything lower than about 140 is considered low. Uh, hyperkalemia or high potassium, which is 6.1 millimoles per liter. Anything above 5.5 is considered high. Mm-hmm. This is a sodium-potassium ratio of 20. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay. What else? Mild hypochloremia is also noted. Okay. Well, our lab work has been exciting to look at, JJ. Yes, it has been fruitful. Okay. So that sodium-potassium ratio of 20 in a young standard poodle with weird bullshit going on who also has the weird weight loss in the GI signs Addison's disease, baby. Yep. Okay. Like, pretty classic. (laughs) Looking back, everything really fits with that. Okay. Now, we need to proceed with testing in this patient. So, we're looking at an ACTH stimulation test no matter what. Maybe a baseline cortisol if the owners just want to screen first. And that is what I would like to do. Yeah, well, Houston, we have a problem. I'm ready for the problem. The dog got a steroid shot two days ago due to otitis. Okay. Do we know anything about the route or the type of steroid or anything like that? The available records were reviewed and the pet appeared to receive dexamethasone. However, no route type or amount is indicated. (laughs) That complicates things just a smidge. A little bit. And I, I bet people are screaming through the through the radio or, you know, <laughs> through their phone or however they're listening to this. Like, radio. but Grider dexamethasone is safe for testing. And I'm going to tell you, you're not wrong. You're not fully wrong. Just a little. You're bit. only moderately wrong about that. Kind of wrong. Just a smidge wrong. I think that 99% of veterinarians, myself included, especially on a busy ER setting, would just be like, boom, ACTH stimulation test done and if it comes back low and low addison's boom stamp it send it market but there's a chance that you could have just misdiagnosed the dog and we need to always be aware right yeah so long-time listeners of the podcast you're going to be saying haven't yeah. y'all already done the addison's disease episode what the hell like it this cheating <laughs> so yes the answer is yes we have done addison's disease episode already it was season one episode 12 titled Mini Chemistries, like many, like multiple, M-A-N-Y. Appropriate. Appropriate. Okay, but real quick, let's do a quick hitting review just to tune everybody's mind up, because I know 
for me, going over stuff multiple times is the only way that I really retain it. So, hypoadrenocorticism, or Addison's disease, is a deficiency of glucocorticoid and or mineralocorticoid secretion by the adrenal glands. The adrenal glands typically produce glucocorticoids, mineralocorticoids like aldosterone, catecholamines, and androgens. Glucocorticoids produced by the adrenal glands stimulate hepatic gluconeogenesis, glycogenesis, and glucose formation. They enhance fat and protein catabolism. They maintain vascular reactivity to catecholamines. They help maintain the body's blood pressure and temperature. They preserve the GI mucosal barrier, and they're involved in many metabolic reactions in the body. Mineralocorticoids are essential for balancing sodium and potassium in the body. Mineralocorticoids increase sodium absorption and potassium secretion in the kidneys, sweat glands, salivary glands, and intestinal epithelial cells. And when a patient has Addison's disease, dysfunction of either the adrenal glands, such as in primary hypoadrenocorticism, or of the pituitary glands, such as in secondary hypoadrenocorticism, is occurring. The most common type of Addison's disease in the dog is primary, and it's likely due to an autoimmune disease. Primary Addison's disease can be typical, meaning a deficiency in both glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids, or it can be atypical, meaning that just the glucocorticoids are deficient. Addison's disease is often referred to as the great pretender because clinical signs are vague and mimic other illnesses. Chronic signs tend to wax and wane. The signs are often nonspecific and intermittent. Lethargy, weakness, anorexia, vomiting, and diarrhea are common. Other abnormalities that you might see include polyuria, polydipsia, tremors, weight loss, poor body condition, depression, low heart rate, abdominal pain, melena, which is blood in the stool, bloody vomiting, dehydration, and hyperkalemia-induced cardiac arrhythmias. In one study of Addisonian dogs, the most common signs were lethargy, anorexia, and vomiting. Dogs with typical Addison's disease, again that means that both glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids are affected, typically have a sodium of less than 135 and a potassium of greater than 5.5. That's because of that mineralocorticoid deficiency. They usually have a sodium to potassium ratio of less than 27. Ours was 20. It's pretty exciting. Addison's is not the only problem that can create a low sodium to potassium ratio, but it's very common when we see it. So Addison's is the first thing we need to look at. Yep. In one study, 93% sensitivity and 96% specificity was associated with a low sodium to potassium ratio. Now, other studies have showed much lower specificities, but it is a consistent finding that this is very, very associated with Addison's. Dogs with Addison's disease are most often young or middle-aged with a median age of onset of three to four years. And there are many predisposed breeds, but the standard poodle is one of them. And that's the type of dog that we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. And just as a reminder, the gold standard for definitive diagnosis of Addison's disease is an ACTH stimulation test. 
Dogs with Addison's disease will have low cortisol on both the pre and the post samples. And in many cases, the results are going to be way too low to read. Alternatively, you could do a baseline cortisol as a screening test first before proceeding to an ACTH stimulation test. A baseline cortisol is helpful because if the baseline cortisol is greater than two, you can essentially rule out Addison's disease. But you can't use a baseline cortisol to diagnose it, so you still have to do the ACTH stimulation test if the baseline cortisol is low. Baseline cortisol can be run in-house, but there is some controversy regarding how accurate the in-house tests are. And just know that in general, even if you're running a baseline cortisol, it is best to use the reference laboratory if at all possible to confirm results. So now that we've taken a moment to review the disease process, we suspect Addison's in this particular case were faced with running an ACTH stimulation test. And the problem with that is this. If the dexamethasone dose two days ago in this dog was sufficient enough to suppress ACTH, we could do an ACTH stimulation test. The dog could look at Addisonian and we could misdiagnose it as Addisonian when it has a completely different problem. Rats. Rats. So that's the problem. Dexamethasone is, quote, safe to give to Addisonian patients when you suspect an Addisonian crisis is happening and you need to give steward right now. The reason that it's, quote, safe is that dexamethasone will not cross-react with a cortisol assay. So the dexamethasone shot will not, like, quote, show up on the test. Okay. However, dexamethasone still does create pituitary suppression to suppress ACTH release. Okay, so that doesn't happen right away. The steroid's got to work its way like do-to-do-to-do all the way through the body and then do a feedback mechanism to the brain. So that takes some time. So that's why it's considered safe to give, right? Mm -hmm. You have a crashing patient. You give the steroid IV. You draw the pre-sample. You give the ACTH right away because you're going to get a post-sample in an hour because that's the plan because we need to diagnose it, right? You don't start them on steroids two days ahead of time. Yeah. Because by then it could have affected the pituitary secretion. So the question then has to be, how long is the withdrawal period (laughs) for dexamethasone before it stops suppressing the pituitary secretion of ACTH? And I looked this up substantially and I can't find it. (laughs) I don't know. This is not a very common situation, which is why it's such a good case, right? Mm -hmm. It's such a good case. How do you test? When do you test? How can you be confident that the test results that you're getting back haven't been affected by the dexamethasone two days ago? Do you need to use some sort of a different testing procedure? Do you wait a certain number of days or does it depend on the dose of the steroid or the route, which we don't have that information right now? It's a unique situation. Mm, yeah. I don't think this is included in the Addisonian testing decision tree. It's not. And, you know, multiple book chapters. <laughs> I searched all over veterinary message boards. I guess we're going to have to phone a friend. Yep. We're going to phone a friend. Dr. Ellen Barrent, an internal medicine specialist focusing on endocrinology who happened to teach me when I was at Auburn. She has since retired 
from Auburn. Uh, she has agreed to answer the phone. So we are going to actually call her on the podcast and see what she says. Now, because this is a phone call, you're going to notice maybe some difference in the audio quality, but I think it's pretty valuable for us to have this interaction with her. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to dial her up. Hello. Oh, hi, Dr. Barron. It's Lauren Greider. I figured such. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. So when we talk about uh, any glucocorticoid, they could potentially affect an ACTH stim in two ways or any time that you measure cortisol. One way is that some of the glucocorticoids can be picked up by assays and falsely elevate a cortisol measurement. Um, and the ones that we know that do that are prednisone, prednisolone, methylprednisolone, and hydrocortisone. When people say that dexamethasone is safe, that's because that's not one of the ones that cross-reacts and falsely elevates cortisol. So for the ones that do cross-react, you can't give those certainly within 12 hours, some people say 24 hours, before you do anything that measures cortisol um, because you're going to get a false reading. Dexamethasone will not do that. So you could give dexamethasone and measure cortisol immediately, and you're not going to get any kind of false reading. Gotcha. So the, the dexamethasone being safe, that part is just it doesn't cross-react with the cortisol assay. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. But the other way that any glucocorticoid can interfere with a cortisol measurement is that giving a glucocorticoid can suppress ACTH secretion. And if you suppress ACTH secretion, you're going to suppress cortisol secretion. Mm-hmm. And it happen really quickly. If you put a dog on like anti-inflammatory doses of PRED, the ACTH stem is going to look Addisonian within just about a week. It, the adrenals can be suppressed really, really quickly. Um, and any steroid can do that. How quickly it's going to do that, how much it's going to do that, how long you have to have the dog off steroids to get rid of that interference um, is impossible to predict which steroid you used, which route you gave it, how long you gave it. And it also depends on the individual dog because some dogs are not that sensitive to steroids and some are hugely sensitive to steroids. So they can get suppressed really, really quickly. And we see that clinically. You know, you put a dog sometimes on immunosuppressive doses of PRED and you talk to the owner about the side effects and they're like, meh, not so bad. And then you put another dog on what's a fairly low dose of steroid and the owners come back two days later and say, oh my gosh, this dog is drinking so much I can't stand it anymore. So that's just individual dog variation and there's absolutely no way to predict that. So for this particular case, the problem that we're running into is this dog had dexamethasone 48 hours ago. Is that going to make the dog look like an Addisonian on an ACTH stimulation test? And it sounds like the answer is maybe, and that we also can't predict when that effect will end. 
Probably not Addisonian with one dose of dexamethasone two days before, based on what's in the literature. Based on what's in the literature, you could get a suppressed response. Mm -hmm. So if normal post is 80 to 20 micrograms per deciliter, you could get a post in a dog like that that's like five or six, but not one, which is what we expect with Addisonians. In a dog that got one dose of dexamethasone, unless it was a just absolutely ridiculously high dose, I would not expect it to be look like I would not expect it to look like an Addisonian in two days. Now, if you gave repeated doses, you know, you did that for three days, then it could look Addisonian. But a single dose of dexamethasone um, is not going to make a dog look Addisonian in a couple days. So, in this case, then going ahead with an ACTH stimulation test is reasonable. And then if the results are like unmeasurable, you know, post unmeasurable, then you're like, okay, this dog has Addison's disease. You feel fairly confident about that. Yes. Okay. But if it's like just a little suppressed and then just a little suppressed, um, that's not consistent with the diagnosis. Close. Close. Okay. The, the pre could actually be quite low, mm. uh, but the post would just be a little suppressed. And that's the important number, really. So gotcha. I would be looking more at the post in that situation. Okay. So say this dog, you know, came back with an ACTH stem uh, where the pre was like flat lines, unmeasurable. And then the post, it, it did go up some you're going to be thinking mm, these are the effects of the steroid and this dog is not Addisonian. It depends how much it goes up. Yes. Okay. Uh, if okay. it's just below normal, you know, usually, so again, people use different units for measuring cortisol. Okay. Normal post is eight to 20. Then typically I'm looking at a post less than two to say that it's, consistent with Addison's disease. Now, of course, that could be due to an exogenous steroid if you've been giving enough, as we've been talking about. Um, but anything two to five is like really questionable. Um, and five to eight is not Addison's disease. It's too high. Okay. Um, so if the dog was unmeasurable pre and the post was less than two, then I would say, well, that's consistent with Addison's disease. If it's two to five, it's probably not Addison's disease, but it's questionable. Um, but it's probably not. And greater than five, I don't think the dog is Addisonian. And if your post... It's all about gray zones and endocrinology. Right. <laughs> oh, my least favorite thing. <laughs> so in this particular case, if you did get one of those middle-of-the-road low post numbers, would you just, you know provide supportive care for the dog without steroids, wait longer, and stem again? Yes. Yes. Okay. And how long would you have to wait? Is is there a way to predict? No, there's not, Okay. fortunately. So the longer the dog has been on steroids, the higher the dose, um, and certainly, you know, injectable, which can be more potent than oral and things like that, you'd have to wait longer. You know, with the post- between two and five, that dog is probably not going to be having clinical signs of cortisol deficiency. So if you wait longer, I think that's fine. 
in a case where it's suspicious, but we're short of having to wait to do another ACTH stem, is there value in trying to do other testing, like maybe adrenal ultrasound, things like that? Or is it like, nah, just just wait on the test? Yeah, unfortunately, just wait. I can go into why I think that if you want me to. But yeah, I, sure. I, okay. <laughs> So adrenal ultrasound is not all that helpful for diagnosing Addison's disease. Um, If the adrenal glands look small, they probably are small. Uh, But given glucocorticoids can make adrenal glands look small as well because Mm. the adrenals are going to atrophy. And there's actually one paper out there in the literature that said dogs with small adrenals are not all that likely to be Addisonian after all. And Addisonians can have normal-looking adrenals. So I don't think it's really all that helpful to do ultrasound for diagnosing Addison's disease. Real quick, while we're talking about ACTH stimulation tests and Addison's disease, I have kind of heard mixed reviews of the in-house cortisol assays that are available, like the point-of-care tests. And I've heard some people that just swear by them, run them on every case when they're in emergency. And sometimes I hear people say they're unreliable. Yeah. Is there a definitive answer there? Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay, great. <laughs> no, I can, tell, I can tell you that the VIN endocrine consultants are not big fans of the cort- in-house cortisol assays. Now, I will say that's the ones that have been on the market for a while. There is a new one coming out by a company called Zometica, um, which is a totally different and really interesting methodology that I don't have any experience with clinically to be able to say that I have an opinion on it. But the ones that have been out there for a while, we have seen a number of cases on the VIN boards, and I saw a number of cases consulting elsewhere where... Typically, it's a diagnosis of Addison's that has been missed as compared to a diagnosis of Cushing's that has been missed. Um, But we've seen some very discrepant results when samples were run in-house and then the dog was retested in an outside laboratory. Okay. And this is... um like a baseline cortisol, so they're they're doing a baseline cortisol to try to rule out Addison's. It's coming back over to they're saying oh, it can't be Addison's, and then later we find out actually when we send it to the to the reference lab, this is consistent with Addison's. Yes. Okay. And of course, I think we should plug in. You know, you can't diagnose Addison's on a baseline cortisol, but it's like a great screening test. Exactly right. And I've heard some people lately say that a baseline cortisol can diagnose Addison's. Oh. Completely disagree with that. Okay. Um, a baseline cortisol less than two micrograms per deciliter, um, which is the cutoff, or 55 nanomoles per liter, which is the other way of measuring cortisol, um, is consistent with Addison's. But there's one paper out there that says one third of dogs with a cortisol that low do not have Addison's disease. So, if you're using only baseline cortisol to diagnose Addison's disease, you are overdiagnosing one third of dogs. Okay. Okay. And I'm guessing I can predict what your answer to this question is going to be, <laughs> uh, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. I have seen in maybe emergency circles clinicians advocating for use of the in house cortisol assay to run essentially an in house ACTH stem. 
So they run an in-house cortisol, give the cortrosin, wait an hour, run another in-house cortisol, and they're using that to stem the dog. Pros and cons of that approach. Wait, say that again. So they're, so they're using the in-house assay to test baseline cortisol. Then they're administering cortrosin and then testing another in-house cortisol in an hour, kind of trying to do an in-house ACTH stimulation test. No, I don't think that's a good practice. Okay. And unfortunately, this is all, I will admit, this is all anecdotal information. I have not seen any publications comparing any of the in-house cortisols to laboratory results recently. Um, So I have no publication that says... I'm right. Um, but I know a number of endocrinologists who agree with me. Okay. So while no one has uh, taken a bunch of Addisonian dogs and, and, and used this methodology to accurately diagnose them, like we haven't tested it, just the information that we know about the cortisol assays that are available in-house tells you it might not produce accurate results. Yes. All right. Well, if I was going to sort of summarize our conversation in the major takeaways, uh, I'm going to say some statements and you say like, yep, or like not quite. When we say that dexamethasone is, quote, safe to give before testing for Addison's, we're talking about using dexamethasone in like an emergent, immediate sort of situation where we're drawing, you know, the ACTH stem and everything kind of at the same time. And if there's a delay, then we can have the potential for some effects on the ACTH stem results. And if it's affected, it will essentially look more Addisonian than than the dog actually is. Yes. Okay. And one single dose of dexamethasone several days ahead of an ACTH stimulation test is probably not enough to create like a flatline post. Like it'd be hard to to mistake that type of uh, dramatic ACTH stem result. It'd be hard to misinterpret that. Like that dog is going to be Addisonian. Yes. Okay. We'll see a mildly low post-ACTH, they try and over-interpret that. Oh, okay. They're worried that maybe this dog does have some adrenal issues because the post is not quite normal. Um, So I think that gets over-interpreted. But a mildly low post is not something I would worry about personally. Okay. So if, um, say in this case, the results came back and the post is like unmeasurable, we can feel confident in a diagnosis of Addison's disease. With a single dose of dexamethasone, yes. Yes. If there had been multiple doses ahead of time, though, then we need to wait and test later at some point. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. And if it's in that sort of intermediate range that you described where it's, you know, technically it's below the reference interval, but it's not a complete flatline that we still can't confirm a diagnosis or rule it out necessarily, we just have to wait longer and test again. Yeah, so if it's in that range of 2 to 5 micrograms per deciliter, which is about 50 to 150-ish nanomoles per liter. Is there anything else that we need to know about diagnosing Addison's disease in a case that has had some previous steroid exposure that we haven't gone over yet? Admittedly, it can get to be quite 
complicated um, depending on the case. There's always going to be caveats. Um, part of the difficulty is that if a dog has been on steroids for a little while and it, you're concerned it has Addison's disease, then an ACTH stem could still be worth it um, because if the cortisol levels are high enough to rule it out, then you know and you're done. And the less doses of glucocorticoids given before you do an ACTH stem, the better. The problem really comes when you have a dog that you really think could be Addisonian. Um, it's been on steroids for a while. The ACTH stem is flatlined, and then you don't know whether it's mm. an Addisonian or whether it's due to the exogenous steroids. Um, and the only way to know would be to wean the dog off steroids, which if you're really worried the dog has Addison's disease, you're not going to want to do. Right. Uh, so I think it's important to keep Addison's disease high on your radar screen and really think about testing for it as soon as possible in the progression of the diagnostics, um, especially if you're thinking about giving steroids for whatever reason. Because of how complicated it makes diagnosis later. Yeah. You can rule it out fairly easily if the cortisols are high enough, but if the cortisols are low, it's a mess. Mm. Okay, Dr. Barron. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you allowing you allowing us to phone a friend with you today. Yeah, absolutely. And I will send you a bunch of papers okay. that I kind of referred to if I remember all of them, and um, so you can take a look at them. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, guys. Well, that's that. Thank you, Dr. Barron, so much for consulting on our case, and JJ. Yep. Let's get back to our case. What happened next for this particular patient? Okay. The patient was tested with the ACTH stimulation test 24 hours after presenting to the ER, and both the pre and post values were unmeasurable. Mm. Mm. Meaning low. Yeah. Yeah. Too low to read. Yeah. Okay. And Addison disease was diagnosed based on the case history, signalment, clinical findings, and response to treatment. The chances of this being something else seem very low. Let's, again, hit the high points of patient management. This is just cut and dried, real quick hitting review. Again, if you want a full review, take a look at that season one episode, um, because it, it really is a super deep dive into Addison's disease. I re-listened to it prepping for this episode, and I was like, damn, girl, we did a good job on that. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, dogs who come in in an Addisonian crisis. Now, this is not really what's going on with this particular case that yeah. we're presenting now. This dog is one of those, like, chronic, waxy, wany ones that hasn't crashed just yet. Mm -hmm. We got a little time on them. But the ones that are coming in trying to die right now, mm -hmm. you treat those guys like any patient who's in shock. So aggressive fluid therapy is the absolute most important first step. Sodium chloride used to be considered the best fluid choice for Addison's disease, but that has changed after documentation that correcting hyponatremia or low sodium too rapidly creates neurologic signs in some patients. So now isotonic fluid solutions like lactated ringers, Normar, or plasmalite are recommended instead. The fluid replacement rates are going to be determined in part by using calculations to gradually correct the hyponatremia. You need to grab your textbook for that. I'm not going to go over that on the podcast, okay? 
In most cases, fluid therapy is sufficient to resolve sodium and potassium abnormalities, so you don't necessarily have to add additional things or anything like that. And then for more information, I would strongly recommend reviewing the Vencyclopedia chapter for hypoadrenocorticism, which was recently updated in 2022. So the info is super fresh. Once you have the patient stabilized, or in this case, you already have a stable patient, we have a working diagnosis of Addison's. We need to contemplate steroid replacement. Now, ideally, you're going to do an ACTH stimulation test before giving any type of steroid. Glucocorticoid therapy is indicated, but immediate administration is not essential, even in an Addisonian crisis. It's treating the shock that's the most pressing thing. But when you're given steroid, dexamethasone is preferred because it doesn't cross-react with that cortisol assay. It should be given in conjunction with or simultaneously as the blood is drawn for the ACTH stimulation test because less time equals less opportunities to press pituitary secretion of ACTH and FRR results. (laughs) Once the PET has been tested, other forms of glucocorticoids can be used. Usually that's going to be prednisone or prednisolone. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure you're using physiologic doses, which is EDBD. Itty bitty amounts. Mineralocorticoids will need uh, to be replaced in cases of typical Addison's disease, like in this case where electrolyte abnormalities are present. I mean, this this dog's going to have typical, just classic Addison's disease. And eventually, some of the time, cases of atypical Addison's disease will progress to typical cases as the autoimmune issue that creates Addison's disease gets worse in the adrenal gland. Mineralocorticoid replacement is usually with desoxycorticosterone prep. <laughs> I got, oh, you almost had it. I almost had it. Almost. DOCP or desoxycorticosterone pivolate or Florinef. <laughs> Stupid. I Sorry. How do you really feel? The makers of Florinef are going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, yes, I don't like Florinef. Florinef might be less expensive. But it's a pain in the ass, and the dosing is all over the place, and I've literally never had even one dog ever do well on it. So, trash can. (laughs) Use the DOCP. All pets need daily glucocorticoid. Okay, all of them. However, DOCP is given at intervals of around 28 days initially, and then we spread it out and find the lowest effective dose. And people worry a lot about DOCP and the cost, I mean, because it is expensive, But the good news there is that research is showing that lower doses and less frequent dosing is required for many patients, way less than we previously thought. And so basically you get them stable for several months and then you start just progressively reducing the dose and or progressively increasing the amount of time between injections while monitoring electrolytes and then see what that patient individually needs. That's good. Yeah. The prognosis is excellent with treatment. Treatment will be lifelong and can be, con- can be expensive, yeah. sometimes cost-limiting in large dogs. Sounds like Bunny got a solid working diagnosis and maybe mystery solved. Yep. And we have a final case update. All right. After starting on a daily physiologic dose of prednisone and periodic DOCP injections, the bunny has returned to normal. Woo! She has regained her lost weight, has no more inappetence or anorexia, 
and no more GI signs. Wow. Because of her robust response to treatment and the classic nature of the clinical signs, history, and test results, Addison's disease is considered to be the pet's final diagnosis. Well, I can't argue with that. I mean, that sounds fantastic. I hope you guys have enjoyed uh, this first episode back. I know it was a fun one for me because I got to revisit a lot of things that I had previously looked up. And anytime I do that, like I feel like my understanding and immediate accessibility of the knowledge just gets much higher. Like, brain refresh. Exactly. Hitting the refresh button on the brain is important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we have actually a few minutes left, JJ. Okay. Um, I think we have time for like just a quick update about how things have been going with both of us since we had this little longer than typical break, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe we can just say a little bit about the things that we've had going on. Okay. Well, you've got more than I do. Me? No, you have a lot. All I've been mainly doing is working and trying to get my voice to work again. Yeah. Well, uh, working is a full-time job. Yeah. That is true. It is is very full-time, but... Yeah. And you've been working with your voice coach. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's a speech pathologist and... She made me give up my diet beverages, which <gasps> made me sad. Why? The carbonation. Oh. Uh, so the working theory, there's several as yeah. to what's causing this, is apparently um, some of the COVID cases that they've seen in the last year, as people recover from that, um, they have a raging case of um, reflux. Okay, like gastric reflux. Okay. And uh, she said that she's had, uh, especially in kids, a large amount of patients come in for this very issue. Wow. So, um, so the voice loss then, or the, I mean, well, you did lose your voice for a while, like completely. Oh, yeah. Um, It would not, in that case, be the result of like a respiratory issue. It would be like stomach acid. Burning your yeah, larynx? Pretty much. That is horrific. Yeah, <laughs> That's which horrific. Is weird oh because, I mean, it doesn't really hurt. I mean, okay. it does from time to time, especially if I overuse it. Like, it'll probably be sore today. Yeah, I bet. But um, <laughs> we have an episode to record after this, too. So I know. I'm excited. We're going to see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> but the other uh, thought was possibly it got super irritated and agitated when I had COVID, and then yeah. I would have been using a um, anti-inflammatory inhaler. Oh yeah, and sometimes that can continuously re-aggravate the situation. Oh, so interesting. So I have well, I've been to so many doctors, but um, most recently I went back to the pulmonologist, and they took me off the inhaler. And I have seen seen some improvements since then. So, but it's it's so freaking gradual. With, yeah, I mean, uh, there's dates, there's times now where I do have almost my full voice back. Yeah, but it it does not last yeah. super long. Yeah. So I kind of have this like you know I can push it and get a little bit more, mm-hmm. but then I start you know it'll yeah. it'll totally go if I do that. Yeah. Well, I think actually, I mean, I don't know how it's coming across to listeners who haven't been listening to you for 
the past several months. But to me, it's actually, it's much better than it was. And uh, I'm glad that you're getting treatment. And, you know, we're just going to ease back into this and see how recording for two hours does for you. (laughs) (laughs) You See how it goes. I mean, if you can hear me, then uh, that's all that needs to happen. (laughs) Yeah. As far as stuff goes for me, um, I'm finishing up my master's in clinical mental health counseling right now at the University of North Alabama. And I am in my clinical uh, training at this time. My anticipated graduation is December. And that's essentially everything I can tell you because I am in my clinical year of training and I can't talk about (laughs) any of those cases at all. It's a very interesting, different type of situation. It's a lot of retention there. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm excited about that. And, you know, I can't, again, I can't talk about it very much. There, it's, uh, there's not just obviously patient confidentiality comes into play, but there's a lot of extra rules because I'm still a student. Mm-hmm. And you know how, like, a much of a crazy rule follower I am. And like, mm-hmm. I'm always paranoid about stuff. So it's kind of like, um... <laughs> is that your cat? <laughs> Yeah, that was Fraggle Kitty. Um, it's like they have like even like a social media and internet use policy and things like that to mm-hmm. where I now I'm like, am I actually allowed to even mention on the podcast where I'm a student? Like it's really it, mm-hmm. some of the language in it. I'm like, okay, like <laughs> y'all are being a little crazy. But yeah, anyway, so maybe we might have to beep that part out. I don't know. I'll look at the. I just don't want to get in trouble. I go to a school. I hate being in trouble worse than anything in the whole world. Girl, same. So, anyway, I have a new kitten. Oh, my goodness. That came into the ER. She was found just abandoned in a Walmart parking lot. And she had a severe degloving injury to her left rear leg. And she was an itty-bitty baby, seven or eight weeks old. She came in on Carl's birthday, mm-hmm. and it wasn't actually my case, um, but I kind of saw people, you know, carrying her, her around and, like, doting upon her and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then at some point, I guess the Good Samaritans that brought her in sort of, I don't know, maybe threatened to put her back in the parking lot. It was There was drama. In any way, long story short, I was like, just give me the cat, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then, um, so I had to, like, tell Carl, like, hey, happy birthday. Happy freaking birthday. I got you a kitten. (laughs) It's not what you wanted, but here she is. It's the gift you didn't know you wanted. That's right. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, thousands of dollars later, I have a three-legged cat who is, like, the love of my damn life. (laughs) Yep. Stevie. She's Stevie. Yeah, she's such a good cat. And, um. Carl does love her, actually. Like, mm-hmm. They're gross. Super. She loves him more than me, for sure. Anyway, so that's about everything that I've been dealing with. And JJ is getting a new companion. Oh, yes. Well, it's going to be Ben's dog. Yeah. But he's been wanting a, a golden retriever since we lost Snuffy. So yeah. next month, we get she or he. Yeah. We're, we're hoping for a she, but... And do you, do you have names picked out? Yes. Okay. 
as you know, when we have names. Yeah, they're kind of weird. Sure, I'm ready. Um, So you know where Squeegee's name came from, right? No. I mean, to be honest, I don't know. Squeegee was JJ's border collie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Squeegee's name was long, but... It mainly was Squeegee Beckenheim, and it's from an episode of Gilmore Girls. Okay. Um, I have never watched that show. It's a great show. Okay. But uh, basically, there was an episode about how one of the main characters was cleaning out the um, catalogs she had, and she said complaining about how many different names were on there. And apparently, she had given the name of Squeegee Beckenheim and Tukey Clothespin. Oh, Lord. So, Tukey Clothespin. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. Is going to be the dog's name if it's a girl. Okay. And Tukey. if it's a boy, it's going to be Meg Bang from The Simpsons. And I'm not Ben Picks the name because it's his dog's. So. Okay. You said Meg Bang? Meg Bang. Yes. Like M-C-B-A-N-E, Mick Baines. Something like that. Mm. I, I also I am not an avid. I mean, I've watched it a little, but I don't know. Ben is going to be irritated recording this. Yeah, he's going to be like, why do you yeah. not know this is going to be the dog's name? But yeah. I, I don't. I, he has so many Simpsons references that I'm like, what? <laughs> but it's okay. Okay. So if it's a girl, she's going to be named. Tukey. Tukey. Not clothes. Right. Or pen. I mean, that's the middle name. All my animals have middle names. <laughs> like Fizzgig is Fizzgig Ferdinand. From... <laughs> The Dark Crystal and Ferdinand the Bull. Absolutely. And it encompasses his personality completely. It does. It does. Hopefully, I don't know what a personality of a Tukey is, but we're going to find out. I feel confident that the universe has it under control. Yep. And we're going to find out. I mean, most people don't name their dog Squeegee, but it just totally fit her. It did fit her. Yep. A hundred percent. Yep. Yep. So I think that's going to wrap us up for the first episode of season four. I hope you missed us. I, I know that <laughs> many, multiple people have. Trust me. Because I have been getting messages about it. In my email. In person. On my Facebook account. I've gotten a few texts, but mm-hmm. I'm not out in the wild as much as you no, are. No, no. Working from home will do that. Yep. It will. For references for any of the medical stuff that we referenced today. You can read the show notes. Uh, also, remember to go back and listen to that season one episode, Mini Chemistries, to get the full lowdown on Addison's disease from our colorful selves, including fantastic commentary. And we will also put the references from that in the show notes as well. So. I would recommend the Venn Cyclopedia article on Addison's disease. It's been updated even since we recorded that episode. Definitely take a look at that. And if you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. TikTok. And it's at introverts. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Show new. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.